Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with John Levy. John, how are you doing? I'm phenomenal. I've, uh, it's a beautiful sunny day in New York, and uh, I am finally getting to talk to somebody <laughs> that I, I haven't gotten to see in a while, so I'm just excited to catch up. So I'm going to say a bit about how we met before talking about your bio. If I remember right, we both spoke at a co-working space at some event there. That's right. Yeah. Afterward, we were just kind of chatting and I found you interesting. I think you found me interesting. And then a little while later, I get an email saying, there's this event. Why don't you come? I'm like, well, that looks kind of interesting. And then I look you up and I see this New York Times articles about you and all these things about you and your events. I'm like, this is really cool. So I go to the event and I've been to a couple, maybe two or three. and it's the most amazing people. And I didn't know where you came from and how it happened. So I'll link to the TED Talk so that people can look. I think that gives a, a nice history as well as the New York Times articles. Sure. And here, I'm going to read a bit from your bio and then let you... Okay. So John Levy is a behavioral scientist best known for his work in influence, human connection, and decision-making. John specializes in applying the latest research to transform the ways companies approach marketing, sales, consumer engagement, and culture. His clients range from Fortune 500 brands like Microsoft, Google, AB InBev, and Samsung and startups. But here's the interesting part. More than a decade ago, he founded the Influencers Dinner. This is capital, the Influencers Dinner, a secret dining experience for industry leaders ranging from Nobel laureates, Olympians, celebrities, and executives to artists, musicians, and even the Grammy-winning voice of the bark from Who Let the Dogs Out. And this is a little dry because I know from talking to you, it's much more, you give the human side of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a completely, you know, this gives a, an overview, but really the weird story is that when I was 28, I was like heavily in debt. I was overweight. I didn't really have like a major career direction. Yeah, I was good at what I did, but I wasn't like remarkable or amazing. Nobody would have been like, oh, you have to talk to John Levy. And uh, I was trying to figure out what would actually let me create a life I, I enjoyed and was passionate about. And uh, it's kind of funny. I, I read a lot of like personal development books mm-hmm. and I kind of realized that there's, uh, I could try to duplicate everything Bill Gates did and I wouldn't be successful. Like most advice we get is not reproducible. Uh, but what kind of seems to be universal around across all human beings is that our relationships really matter, that who we're connected to, how much they trust us, and the sense of community or belonging that we share has a huge impact on our lives. And so I figured if I could connect with really extraordinary people, you know, those kinds of people you admire and respect Mm -hmm. and not just become friends with them, but have them become friends with each other so that everybody could positively impact each other, then my life would get better. And so would theirs. And so the dinner is 12 people come who don't know each other. They cook dinner together. And when they sit down to eat, they get to guess what everybody else does. But there's a catch. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or even give their last name. So it's completely anonymous until we're eating. And then they find out that it's an eight-time Olympic medalist, a Nobel laureate, a editor-in-chief of a major magazine, and so on and so forth. And so I've hosted over, what is it, 2,000 people, at 227 dinners in 10 cities in three countries. And I think the kind of most interesting thing about it is that Frankly, I'm not particularly special. I'm kind of like geeky and awkward and (laughs) grew up super unpopular. And uh, when you understand how people actually behave and what causes us to connect, really anybody can apply it. It doesn't take a genius. And so it's something that 
all of us can kind of learn how to do and really develop me- more meaningful relationships. When you started, you that means you started without knowing. Oh, no, I didn't know anybody. My parents are, are immigrants. I didn't come from like the quote unquote right family. Right. But later in life, my parents did a bit better. So I was able to go like a private high school, but I didn't have any f- real friends there. I wasn't popular at all. This is what I'd love to hear, especially on something in the environment where people are Thank like- Thank you. I was hoping my, uh, the pain and loneliness of my yeah. childhood would be <laughs> something you'd love to hear. The access to everybody that, that you know, you didn't start with anything that most people don't have, and yet it grew. I'm, I'm imagining there's a lot of perseverance and time and effort and caring. I would say, yeah, like the, the caring for sure. Sorry to interrupt. I just, I- Remember to study one of the ones I included in the book. You know, they say uh, we're six degrees of separation between everyone. Mm-hmm. That comes from an old study by Milgram, I think it was, uh, where he, he tried to get a package across the country and it took uh, 5.4, I think, random strangers on average to get the, the package to somebody that you didn't know. Mm-hmm. Facebook did a follow-up study and found that all of us are, or almost all of us are separated between three and a half and four and a half connections. Mm-hmm. So like assuming it's within the country or even within a city, you're probably talking like you're probably two and a half connections away from anybody that you really want to connect with. And that's pretty awesome. That means that anybody you want to know is your friend's friend's friend. So like just ask for a bunch of introductions and you'll get to them. And it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to do it and to make it happen in your experience. Oh, yeah. No, those two are completely different. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And you did it. What yeah. was the, do you remember the first couple, what they were like? Oh, my God. Yeah, they were a train wreck, like just uh-huh. an absolute train. So first of all, I, you know, the first dinner wasn't like a Nobel laureate and Olympian, right? It was like somebody who was pretty successful in real estate who I knew, but didn't even know that well. And like uh, somebody who at the time, this is, you know, 2009, 2010, around then. It was like somebody who had 10,000 followers on Twitter, right? Like now Mm -hmm. 10,000 followers, like nobody even notices you. So the first dinner was in my apartment. The air conditioner broke. It was like- (laughs) Summer? It was warm weather. I think it may have been summer. And like people were sweating in the kitchen and it was awkward and uncomfortable and they loved it. Because it was so fundamentally different from anything else, right? Like, here's one of the funny things about human connection. When you're starting out, you're like 18, 22, whatever it is, you ask for advice. How do I really succeed? And people say, you have to know the right people. Go out there and what did they tell you to do? Network. Starts with a man. Yes. And it freaking sucks. Like, let's be honest. Nobody likes it, or almost nobody likes it. In fact, research from Harvard Business School done by Francesca Gino and her colleagues mm-hmm. found that we tend to feel dirty from networking. Literally, people's implicit association is that they need to wash. And the reason is that it lacks anything that's actually human, right? It feels like it's a transaction, like you're using somebody. And also, like you're walking up to some random stranger hoping that they want to buy your product or service or will make an introduction, whatever it is. So nobody really does it. Now, what they also found was that when it comes to making friends, we don't feel that way. Like, Josh, are you, do you consider yourself more introverted, extroverted, shy, gregarious, whatever? You just asked a big question for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. 
I know it's a big topic, but I grew up introverted and learned to be extroverted, and now I can do either. Great. So, regardless of if you were introverted, extroverted, or shy, right? You probably still liked making friends. Yeah. If a friendship really emerged, like if it felt genuine and authentic. Yeah. Like it might be a question of scale. Like you maybe didn't want to try to make friends with 10 people simultaneously that were all strangers, right? But you still would love to have friends. But what we seem to forget is that the way we make friends isn't through randomly showing up, trying to find an awkward topic of conversation and, you know, like interviewing a person. We generally make friends through shared interests, activities, or culture, right? I'm sure there's probably other examples, but if the two of us have an interest in stamp collecting, Mm -hmm. we might start chatting on a Reddit thread, and that could blossom into a friendship. Whereas in activity, if we're both on the same soccer team, suddenly there's a camaraderie. Mm -hmm. And so... We make our lives really difficult. We meet people for coffee, which feels like an interview. But if you actually look at how human beings really behave, we're better off maybe taking a walk together or, I don't know, taking a painting class or working out together. And there's a whole slew of reasons. It turns out that you'll actually trust me more if we work out together. I have to interrupt because I, yeah. I did something recently. So I'm a single guy and uh, I met a girl and we went on our, our first date. And I think, I suspect you're going to say this is really a good thing to do. And I mm-hmm. suspect most people don't. So people who know me know that I pick up at least one piece of trash and I have since 2017. Every day I pick up at least one piece of trash. Every time you leave the house? Mm-hmm. And well, at least once per day. And actually now since the pandemic, I pick up more. And, and I also go to Washington Square Park, which is around the corner for me and pick up at least three pieces there. So that was our first date. I met her by the, I got her out of the, she took the subway. I met her at the station and we went to Washington Square Park and picked up garbage together. So I'll give you points for novelty. Uh, I think that it really depends on the personality. This might serve as a great example of a litmus test, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, you remember those color changing strips that you would use in, in like earth science class or chemistry as a, a child. And mm-hmm. it's like a quick test that you can evaluate if something's an acid or a base and it changes color. And I love these things because let's be honest, Josh, any girl that you would date that wouldn't be accepting of that would probably have a tough time with your general lifestyle of really, you know, no packaging and really having as little of an impact on the environment as possible. And so I think it's actually a phenomenal way to weed out the potential partners that, I'm sorry, go ahead. I left out a couple earlier steps of the phone calls that preceded it. It wasn't like, Hey, let, it wasn't, it, you know, I, I figured, I figured that like you're, if she said yes to it, then that's a great litmus test, right? Uh, because I think you may know this one of the, the research studies I did with my uh, lab partner, Moran Surf, uh, was uh, probably the largest study in history on dating. We looked at 431 million potential matches, right? And uh, we found weird things like if you have the same initials, you're 11.3% more likely to date. It's called implicit egotism. Anything that reminds us of ourselves uh, is more appealing or attractive. But the other thing is that people have this conception that like, oh, I want to match with as many people. And that's not what you're actually looking for. You're looking for the people who you should match with. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's better to put things in your profile that will just turn certain people off because you don't want to match with them anyway. And if somebody owns a Hummer, that's probably not the person you want to date. 
I mean, unless you want, you're really committed to introducing them to a new way of thinking. The word that comes to mind for me is polarizing, that I want to mm-hmm. I want to repel people that I want to repel and attract people that I want to attract. I don't sure. want to create a bubble, but that's, I can attract, yeah, I have to make sure I'm not repelling people that actually would benefit my life in some way that I don't realize. Mm-hmm. So it's not just so simple, but generally, and I remember the first time someone says you want to polarize, and I thought polarize, that's such a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> But I've, I've since thought differently about that. So that's why I use the term litmus test simply because it's like, it feels a little less charged, mm-hmm. pun intended, than polarizing. Pun appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think it accomplishes the same thing. Now, you don't necessarily want to be polarizing in everything that you do, right? But when it comes to finding somebody that you're potentially looking for as a life partner, it's probably a decent thing to eliminate the people who you won't necessarily want to spend two hours with picking up trash. <laughs> so back to that. So your early dinners, mm-hmm. the, the context was, it wasn't just people getting together as if to have coffee, but they were, they were enjoying despite the broken air conditioner. Yes. I think you started, do I remember right? That they didn't just come, everyone had, a, you, you had them do stuff. It wasn't yeah. just come and, and eat. So that, that's that activity idea, right? It turns out that if, let's say I want to win you over. And maybe even share ideas with you, whatever it is. If I take you to a really nice meal, this has been going on in the business world for hundreds of years, right? It can be pretty awkward, right? It's not that pleasant necessarily to go out to a business dinner. Or have you ever gone to a party that has swag bags? Yes. Yeah. Now, when I, you'd be the exception, but when I ask most people, what do they do with it? They say, I take it. I look at it. I re-gift certain things to my kids and then I throw the rest out. Mm-hmm. You probably don't even take it to begin with. Yes. But, I'm, I'm honored and flattered. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that's what's really interesting is that we devalue gifts generally. Now there are exceptions, right? So if I I get you a really cool board game that's compostable or something like that. Uh, so when you're tired of having it on your shelves, you know you could get rid of it and it won't have an environmental impact, then you'd go, Wow, John, that's really considerate of you. I, I, I really appreciate that. But in general, gifting or trying to win people over with those kinds of displays don't really work. What does work is the exact opposite. And it's called the IKEA effect. And it states that we disproportionately care about our IKEA furniture because we had to assemble it. So anything we put effort into, we care about disproportionately. And so I wanted to find an activity that caused people to apply shared effort so that by the end of cooking that meal, they would care more about each other and the group. And actually, we, we've done a ton of events. One that actually has to do with the environment that you might get a kick out of mm-hmm. was um, we had people come for dinner and drinks. There were 16 people in total. They grabbed some food. There were four tables of four, and they sat around them. And then at about 30 minutes in, we took away all their food and water abruptly. Mm-hmm. And we put on news reports from Cape Town that were real about how Cape Town is running out of water. And I'm not sure if you remember this a few years back, Cape Town. Yeah, day zero. Yeah, exactly. And uh, maybe you should say it because maybe the listener hasn't heard about it. No, no, it's great. I'm happy you knew it. And the plan was to have 20 filling stations around the city that people can bring kind of like canteens, fill up their water, and uh, they were limited to a certain amount. And then they could take it back to their homes and there were armed guards and everything to make sure that people behave themselves. And so we said, 
each table is a family unit. And we said, all we have is this dirty contaminated water. We've set up an outpost. You have some money. You can buy supplies. And so what people did was they went to the outpost and bought chlorine to kill off bacteria and then supplies to build their own water filter. And so they had to jump through all these hoops in order to get an exact amount of water produced. And then when they were done, they were able to trade some of the water for other supplies. And they got a note in Afrikaans that when they translated it said, congratulations for surviving another day. Much of the world isn't as lucky and has dirty and contaminated water. Please grab a South African dessert and come and join us for a conversation. And then we had a conversation about respecting our water supply, single-use plastic containers, and our oceans. But if you'll notice that as a byproduct of investing effort into the process, it opened up an opportunity to have a conversation that's a lot more meaningful than lecturing somebody about facts, because we were able to give them an emotional experience Mm. that made it real. Suddenly, they're imagining, oh my God, how would I clean this dirty water if I was in the middle of nowhere and this happened? We take our water for granted. Now, I want to ask, the book that is about to come out in four days, You're Invited. Mm -hmm. That's the title of the book for the listeners, You're Invited. But um, it comes out May 11th, 2021. Mm -hmm. And does it tell the story of this? It it sounds like it's, I haven't read it yet. Mm-hmm. So it's the theory and practice of what you're talking about now? Is a reader able... So the, the book explores... I almost don't show up in the book because there's all these incredible historical examples of how people apply ideas around human connection to really drive everything from uh, business success, company culture, social causes, and even people in their personal lives, how to connect more. Because here's something crazy. In 1985, the average American had about three friends besides family. 19 years later, by 2004, we were down to two. Now, people love to blame technology and social media. This is really before most of those things were big. So the real culprit is probably moving for work, being a more transient society. Because every time you move, you reset your social circles. Mm -hmm. So the book tells stories from the creation of Weight Watchers and how a housewife who couldn't even have a credit card under her name created a community that cared about their health and changed millions of people's lives around the world. How the abolitionists and uh, Frederick Douglass developed influence and were able to help Lincoln become president and eventually sign the Emancipation Proclamation. All the way through to like the greatest art heists in history or how certain social causes really can catch on and build support. And I break all that down combined with the behavioral science and how to apply it. So it's not just stories. It's really like, here's an example. Here's what we can learn from it. Here's the science. And here's how you can actually apply it. Because if we want somebody to care about something, we're going to need to take a very different approach than scolding or or (laughs) complaining, right? Shame has never worked very well for behavioral change. And even if you show very little in the book by name, you're not someone in a lab who's, or, you know, in a library researching this stuff, you've done it. Oh yeah. So that's kind of like one of these funny differences is that an author I really respect, for example, is Malcolm Gladwell, but you read Tipping Point and you're like, oh, that's a fascinating idea. Mm -hmm. Gladwell doesn't actually prescribe, oh, here's how you cause a tipping point. And I don't know if he's ever actually caused a tipping point. Maybe he caused a tipping point with the book tipping point. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. the, uh, This book really goes into it because 
I said, I'm actually going to put all of these ideas to the test. And I've been running this community of over 2,000 people for over a decade now. Really applied everything and tested it and worked with companies to do the same. I'm going to do something. I really want to get your thoughts on the process that I do on this podcast. So I'm going to jump ahead sure. and do what I was talking about before. I think it might fit a lot inadvertently with what you're talking about. So is the environment something that you care about? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I start, Most people answer yes. <laughs> and anybody who says, uh, do people ever say no to that question? Yeah. Well, there was one person who, um, he answered a different question than I asked. Mm. So he answered, do you believe in climate change or something like that? Yeah. Which was not exactly what I asked. So yes, people, but then when, once we clarified, then, it, then yes. And people hear a lot of what they expect to hear rather than what I actually say a lot. I've never noticed. <laughs> <laughs> and is it something that you care about enough that, that you've acted on it in any way whatsoever? Yes. So we have, even at the dinners, we have shifted from anything single use that we can avoid. Mm-hmm. So everything from just at the dinners, for example, I'm vegetarian because I had to fly so much for work that I said, I'm going to carbon offset and I'm going mm-hmm. to stop eating meat. And that's why I'm a vegetarian. I actually enjoy the taste of meat, but I haven't eaten meat in several years at this point uh, because of that. At the dinners, uh, we've been steadily moving towards using like meat alternatives also. We use reusable napkins and try to avoid any kind of waste. We have set up multiple like recycling options for everything that we do. And so we, we really take an effort and also when we do host in, uh, larger events, we try to use either uh, rented glasses or we do um, compostable everything. Uh, so it's, that's kind of how we, we take our action. And then, mm-hmm. you know, we support organizations. Uh, we've done stuff with different nonprofits and, and NGOs. I'm hearing, if I'm not mistaken, that this is not something that is imposed on you from without, that this is something coming from your internal motivation. Yes, it's well, it's twofold. One is anytime somebody brings awareness to something, I'll consider it and see what I can to take action that's responsible. The second is that I actually occasionally check in with a environmental consultant, somebody who works with companies on their supply chain and production and so on. And I say, okay, what more could we be doing now? But the fact is that the scale that we operate at is small. But at every dinner, we make emphasis to discuss it and point it out so that it becomes more part of the cultural conversation. If it's a value of yours, and it sounds like it's crunchy if I've misunderstood, where does it come from? What does the environment mean to you? What, I mean, you're saying what you do, mm-hmm. but I think prior to that, there's something that motivates you. There's something that, why it matters. So I viewed the environment as an infinitely interconnected, I don't like to say the network, a network, but for the sake of this example, network of actors and effectors, meaning that the complexity of how one thing affects another from, you know, temperature changes in the ocean will affect the uh, flow of water, which thereby affects temperatures on land. All these kind of wild environmental factors that then affect species and our ability to build on a coastal line because of erosion and so on. I think it's incredible and fascinating. And if we have any plan to have any form of stability as a species 
we have to have the environment be a priority. Otherwise, what we're going to do is find that we will probably peak at a certain point of development and care for humanity and then <laughs> tumble down because 100 million people will have to relocate as we make areas uninhabitable. So if I heard right, there was something about, and I, I didn't catch it all, but there's mm -hmm. network, if, if that's the best word we can use, of, of interconnectivity between people and also the environment, I think. that Well, I view the environment as an interconnected network of its own. So whether that's the relationship between species, the relationship between uh, plant life, temperature, acidity, right? There's all these kinds of factors that are just amazingly impactful on one another that mm -hmm. affect everything from migration to breeding patterns to soil and water tables. And, and as we affect our environment so greatly, it's seeming that we're making it less and less hospitable to anything that we appreciate. Uh, so, you know, what is it now? It's estimated that because of all the plastic we have, we're consuming about a credit card's worth of plastic every yeah, day or every day, every week. Uh, it, uh, no, no. I think it's like week or month or something like that. And but regardless if it's a week or month, it shouldn't even be in a year, right? Like mm. it's, it's not like a, an acceptable characteristic plastic in your, in your food chain. Isn't like, a feature or benefit. It's really a, and if you noticed yesterday, I think it was the CDC announced that our reproductive rates have dropped below sustainability in the US, meaning that we have now reached an all time low where we're producing less children than necessary to uh, cover the death rate or the mortality rate. And it's, uh, and what we know or what we believe is that decent portion of that is caused by uh, the toxicity and what we're consuming. The sperm rates and the fertility and so on. And then the second is that human beings' health is fundamentally impacted because if you measure calorie for calorie, our ancestors 50, 100 years ago would need to exercise much less to maintain a lower weight than we would. Meaning that the toxicity in our body, for whatever reason, is causing us to gain and retain weight more than our ancestors. If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I'm hearing what you're saying. I, at the beginning, you said it was fascinating and hospitability. Uh, I don't know if I said that word right. Mm -hmm. Hospitability. Sure. The ability to be hospice. No, that's not right. <laughs> Hospitable. <laughs> and health. And I think this also connects with what you were talking about, the, your dinners and your connecting with people that I think this is something fascinating to you and something that you sense that you said it may be small, but you make a difference. Mm -hmm. So based on, on what the environment means to you and how you connect with it, as you've described, and I invite you, and is that your option? If you don't want to do it, that's fine. But to think of something that you could do, kind of like what you have, you have your guests do something, for you to think of something you could do to act on that fascination, 
that hospitability. I'm digging myself in a hole saying that word. I'm not saying what like something big or to save the planet. It's not about the rest of the world, although it may have some effect with the rest of the world, but it's something that you do and you do yourself, something new that you're not already doing, something that you're not delegating to others or, or organizing others to do. Could you give me an example of what people tend to do? Oh, well, it depends a lot on what they come up with because usually it comes up with where, like the guy who I said, that was John Lee Dumas. I don't know if, you, if you've met him, but he... Oh, John Lee Dumas. Yeah. Uh, Entrepreneur on Fire. Yeah. Sure. So when I asked him, what does the environment mean to you? He was like, oh, not very much. And mm-hmm. then, but as we spoke, he talked about when he comes back from his runs, he passes by a beach and the beach is always covered with plastic and he, that he cares about. Mm. So for a year... He hates littering or people who litter. Yeah. And so for one year, at least once a month, he would take a bag with him, go to the beach and pick up the plastic. Oh, nice. Have you met Lorna Davis? She decided for a year not to buy any new clothes. And I mean, some of the things, you know, I sing every day. I turn off all my electronics for a bit and sing. And that came from uh, this guy, Vincent Stanley, who's at Patagonia. And he turned off his computers before Friday for, I don't know, a month and ended up writing a book of poetry in that time, as well as on top of being more productive at work. But that's not the goal. The goal is not to be more productive. The goal Mm -hmm. is just, for him, it was turning off the computer and see what happened. Hmm. And everyone comes up with their own thing that has to come from their... I'm not saying like, what does the New York Times say you're supposed to do or Greenpeace or National Geographic? No, I get that. I'm just thinking what it could be. Because we have a lot of practices in general in our house already, which is that we avoid, you know, single-use plastic containers. We... I don't buy very much clothing and I, <laughs> to begin with. Yeah, I actually made an exception with you. Usually I don't answer that question when people say, what are some examples? I, I let the person simmer for a bit. Uh-huh. And almost always they come back with a few things. They, people go through the process you're going through. They talk about what they are doing. And then they kind of struggle to think of the next thing. Usually by the end of it, they, when they come up with something, they look back and they're like, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to do that for a while. It, it like takes a little uncovering. Hmm. And actually, this part is what listeners come back. I don't get a whole lot of comments from listeners, but they're like, mm-hmm. I'm glad that the person struggled because I struggle too. You know, I'm not trying to say that it's some Disney thing that's like, oh, it's easy. Just do this. It's kind of funny because we have so many practices in the house already. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what we would add. Like, we, you know, separate all of our stuff. We tried composting. The building won't accept it. We even monitor our electrical use. You having mentioned some things that you're already doing, but not fully, or that you could, that directions you're already moving. Mm-hmm. The next step is, is usually I say, let's make it a smart goal, mm-hmm. specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time bound. Uh-huh. And if you like something you're doing, electric, you're monitoring the electrical, you're intending to compost. If we made it specific, usually that, that constraint helps people think of, because I'm not saying change for the rest of your life. You might, if you want, go for it. But I'm only saying to try something. Yeah. So the only thing I can think of that we're, would maybe up the game even more is that there are certain things that really require washing before they're put into recycling. <laughs> and so making the effort to wash those things. Like, But I'm not even sure. I'm unconvinced that that's that good because... Frankly, I don't think most of what I put into recycling even gets recycled because it's such a low recycle rate in New York. I mean, it's better than it ends up, I guess, in a dumpster somewhere, but 
I'm at a loss of like what would actually have moved the needle more. It's not about moving the needle. Some pipe, yeah, this is, this is the log jam that you're facing is something a lot of people face. And, and here's the, the other thing. I haven't barely left my house in a year and a half. So there's probably stuff I could be doing outside that just doesn't occur to me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do something that may be helpful, maybe unhelpful. Okay. On composting, since it's something you, I, I read intent, previous intent. You're in New York City, right? Yeah. Are you in Manhattan or Brooklyn or? Upper West, Manhattan. Upper West? I believe that there are compost pickups that have restarted that aren't building-wide. I mean, eventually they're going to restart the building, the, the curbside stuff. It, so the, the issue is that we tried two different composting methods uh-huh. and the heat in the summers in New York make it pretty unbearable. So we've tried both doing freezer bags and we have a section of our trash can that's for composting uh-huh. in our pullout drawer. And neither of them were functional. The freezer bags ended up just causing a bunch of problems in the freezers. So I, I appreciate that. What were you doing with it in the end? After it was in the freezer, were you taking it to the city where the city picks it up? I, we would give it to the building and then they'd just be like, you can't give this to us. Oh, do you know that there are pickup places in the city? I mean, I take mine to Union Square. Yeah, but, but I'm, it's not a functional process for me because the issue is that I travel so much that my availability to be here on pickup days or whatever it is, is no guarantee. And then I'd have piles of <laughs> like the, it just doesn't, it's not like a realistic behavioral shift, right? Okay. So when you, when you actually look at uh, actions that I will take versus actions that I'll maybe kind of take, get annoyed with, and then give up on, mm-hmm. then uh, that would be near the top. It's like, I have to remember on Wednesdays and on Mondays to like go and drop stuff off. Well, for the purpose if compost doesn't fit, then I don't want to impose something that's not coming from inside. I'm assuming all this will be deleted because it's not a... Well, if you want me to, I can, but I think that this is part of the value of that people don't hear this. People read these articles that are like, here's one little thing you can do for the environment and it's not coming from... It's extrinsic and people might comply. Like, listen, we've gotten to the point that we've changed our light bulbs out. We've, you know, I my electronics are on sleep modes. We have light timers. So like if somebody's not in a room for a certain length of time, the lights go out. Every, like I've tried to optimize the place as much as possible. I think you're also thinking of permanent changes to your life. If you're asking me for a month to commit, like to grab some trash every time I'm outside, that, that's like, sure, but that's not particularly interesting. Especially since I leave my house like once a week. <laughs> so I'm trying to think of something that would be useful. I'm going to fill the listeners in on, because there's video, so they can't see you. But I see someone who's like really, like you're not hurting, you're looking, you're seeking. I read, if, tell me if I'm reading wrong, that you're like, you really want to find something. Yeah. I, here's something I, I can actually do, which is I have a habit of writing down everything throughout the day. And then uh, once I'm done with that sheet, I'll pull a new sheet out and start it. But instead, what I can do is commit to fully use all sides of all paper before I shred and recycle. And is that something that, is, that connects with the feelings that you were describing before with the environment? I, I'll be honest, it's, it seems like something nice to do. 
but on an emotional level, it's, you know, I don't feel, I feel like I'm kind of failing at this task. And this is the closest thing that I can do that is like, listen to, I don't like seeing messy, dirty paper. (laughs) I'll do it, but it's not, I look at systems and how I can optimize them, whether Mm -hmm. it's human connection or it's, or it's uh, how an organization works and, and the practices that you've mentioned are really lovely, but there are certain ones that are just unrealistic and trying to force myself to do them won't happen. Like composting just doesn't work in my neighborhood considering how much I travel. Uh, this I can do. Uh, does it have a huge emotional payoff? No, but it's something I can actually do. And I'd rather something I would I can commit to that may be inconvenient, but I can do uh, rather than something that's just not realistic and I'd be lying. So... I think uh, we're coming up on the hour. So I think you were scheduled for an hour. So mm-hmm. I think we probably can't start a whole new topic now. But another thing that listeners can't see is that the, we talked about the blackboard behind me. And can you see what it says on the blackboard? Systemic change begins with personal transformation. Yeah. And so systemic change is, is what I'm after. And I propose, if you're game, to do what you talked about and... Uh, to have a second conversation, and based on that, ex- on the experience there, and also because I, how do you change a system like this? Is I think it's something that you've probably thought of more than most people. Sure, I would argue that it's uh, most people expect change to be a sudden and impressive feat because that's what we like to tell stories about. But the fact is that. If you really look, uh, change is taking a problem and replacing it with slightly lesser problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's we don't like gas guzzlers, so we have electric vehicles. But if everybody right now were to switch to electric vehicles, the impact on the environment would be so tremendous because manufacturing would be ramped up that it would create a new set of problems. So it's... In general, I'm a big believer in the uh, laws of marginal gains. If you can do a 1% improvement each week after a year, you know, the, that 1% change each week becomes a massive exponential impact. And if that 1% is not, you know, recycling my paper after only using one side, okay, then I'm 1% better this week. If that's I've picked up a piece of trash on the street. Great. But things that aren't going to become habitual, people, or or things that won't become adopted by a culture are eventually not going to last anyway, because it's going to take so much effort to keep them in place. And so we need to chip away at things. And that's not what people want. They want sudden instantaneous changes. And I get it, but that won't necessarily stick. So that's not my strategy. Mm-hmm. It's because uh, I think there's a lot of people out there. And by the way, how much time do you have? Because I don't want to go over. I have like four minutes and then I need a couple minutes for transition time. Okay. Then let's begin here next time. If you're, are, Would you mind coming back and sharing how that experience went? And I, I presume this would have to be after the book launch stuff. Yeah, this is going to be in like weeks from now, weeks and weeks. I'd, I'd be open to it for sure. 
Okay. Then I propose that we, we we'll close now. And after we, after we stop recording, but before we hang up, we'll, if, if it's okay with you, put a, a time on the schedule to, for the second one at your convenience. And cause I know how crazy a book launch can be. And then I'll make a note to start picking up here where we left off. All right. That sounds great. Okay. Well, I guess let's close with, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or any last message for listeners? Oh, wow. Here's what I'll say. People these days are more isolated and lonely than ever. And the health impact of being lonely is about on par with smoking a pack a day of cigarettes. We're all feeling really awkward and uncomfortable after not having socialized and that's okay. But if we're going to get through this, we need to connect. We need to reach out to one another. That means that the extroverts need to start putting out invitations and the introverts need to start accepting them. And introverts, that's no excuse. You can call up a friend who you haven't spoken to in a while who might be lonely and check in with them. Uh, Invite them out for a walk. Be safe in the process. But the greatest predictor of anything we care about is who we're connected to how much they trust us, and the sense of community or belonging that we share. And so I encourage you to go connect with people over shared activities where you get to put in joint effort. Oh, and I really, really, really encourage you to pick up like 12 copies of You're Invited. I'm really proud of it. Can you give the full name of the book so that people know? Uh, You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. And you can pick it up anywhere. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble's, local bookshops, I'm sure it'll be just about anywhere that you would want to buy it. And I'm going to add that I've been on the receiving end of this, that I've been to your events. I've met wonderful people and some that I knew and some that I knew. And you're not just talking theory. This is really, it's changed my life. That's awesome. I love hearing that. Nobody ever reports back anything. It's uh, kind of amusing. I think we've introduced, I've hosted over, I don't know, I host several thousand people a year. and. I never really hear if people become friends or not. It's good to hear that you got something out of it. So thanks for coming. Well, it's partly because because you have that whole system. So I, I get re- the invitation comes from someone else than you. <laughs> but now that I know, I'll give the feedback directly to you too. Thank you. Well, John Levy, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.